This is Two Guys in a River. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. We're two lifelong friends who love fly fishing for trout. Our podcast is all about helping you catch more fish and deepening your love of the time you spend on the river. We are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. Over the years, Dave and I have had a handful of 30 or 40 fish days. Now, that doesn't happen often, but it does occasionally. However, we have had a ton of 30 or 40 photo days. <laughs> we try to leave nothing but boot prints and an occasional woolly bugger in a tree. But we take nothing but photos and lots of them. Photographing your fly fishing experience is a skill all to itself, and that's what we want to talk about today. We want to offer you tips for better fly fishing photos. We don't want to brag, but hey, we are just as good at taking fly fishing photos as we are at catching fish. <laughs> and that, my friend, does not sound very promising to the listener. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't. We, we admit it. Our photography skills and our fly fishing skills are average at best. But we still manage to catch some big fish and to take a few great photos. It does happen occasionally, and I guess that's the operative word, occasionally. Uh, why don't we start by talking about our experience with photography. Uh, let's come clean here because neither of us are professionals. But, yeah, Dave, where did you develop your eye for photography? I like your phrase, coming clean, because my family mocks my picture taking they no. yes they do they gripe and grumble every time i take a picture or 30 pictures and they mock how i will sometimes try to get at it you know at different angles you know above them and below them and and seriously <laughs> they and then they go well why did you take so many pictures but i will say in my defense often they're asking me to send some of those photos over to them, you know, to send to message them with some photos. So I, even though my family mocks my uh, my photography skills, they there must be a few good ones that I take. I think, you know, recently I went through our boxes in the attic. My wife and I were thinking about moving from uh, the Chicago area, and we decided not to move. But we basically cleaned out the house, we went into the attic, got all the boxes down, but I started going through some photos and I realized how many pictures I've taken through the years. I'm kind of like the storyteller in both my current family, which is my immediate family, but also my family of origin with my mom and dad. I remember a photo, I took some photos of my brother Matt and I fishing when he was 16. I took him to Elk Creek, Montana, where you and I first really started fishing and and there's a couple pictures of him that are just awesome and I realized that I have been the one taking the pictures through the years and I've got so many great pictures and it was kind of fun to go through all the pictures so so I, you know I, I would say that it's been something that's been a part of my life that I do I don't think the point here is that I do it you know professionally that's for, certainly not true but I do take a lot of pictures hey I digress here but uh, that reminds me I I was looking the other day at, at some, back to some slides, probably some of our listeners, younger listeners, don't even know what slides are, but Dave, I found pictures of you and me on the first fishing trip we ever took. It was a backpacking trip up in the Little Belts in Montana, 
Dave, this is fall of 1980, so we're talking 40 years ago. And I need to, I, I bought a converter so I can convert those slides to, uh, uh, to digital. So when I get that, we'll, uh, I'll get you that photo and we can show our listeners. I'm sure they'll love to see how much we've aged over the years. Talking about your journey, you worked for several years in magazine publishing and editorial services. I mean, certainly that must have made some kind of uh, difference or helped you with photography. For sure. Now, I came up, I was a writer and an editor. That's why they hired me. But in doing projects, you ended up always having to think about, okay, what's the photo that goes with the magazines? Magazines are dead now. Uh, the journal that I worked for at the time, I think they had somewhere between 70 and 80, even close to 100,000 subscribers. We decided to do a photo essay of your dad because he was a pastor out in Montana. He was living yeah. in he was living in uh, in Paradise Valley, you know, right along the Yellowstone River. And we hired a photographer from Southern California. His name was Bill, and he did a lot of high end agency work. But he also did some nonprofit work, and, and he was working with our publication, which was a nonprofit publication. And, and his name was Bill, and I remember him telling the story of his taking photography classes from Ansel Adams. No, really? And so he went to film school, I think it was either at the University of, uh, I think it was San Diego, San Diego State or... Maybe the private school, University of San Diego, but he went to film school there. Uh, that was his undergrad, and he got to take uh, a class or two with Ansel Adams. Ansel Adams died in 1984, so he must have been able to take uh, a class with him right before he died. But anyway, the photos were of your father's, and I learned so much from him about cropping photos. Not like he was teaching me how to do it, but he would point things out when we would publish something in the magazine, he said, you know, I wish you guys had done a tighter crop of this image. So I, I did have some experience uh, like that. Again, I wasn't the photographer. I was the writer and the editor. But so that background was, was really helpful. So what about you, Steve? What kind of background do you have in photography and, and uh, taking pictures? Yeah, well, it really goes back to high school. I, I was a serious photographer in high school. In fact, I I had my own darkroom, and I made a few bucks uh, uh, photographing high school reunions. But I learned a lot from uh, you know, my high school journalism teachers. But my dad got into photography, and, and we, you know, we lived near Peoria, Illinois, and so I, you know, there was the Peoria Camera Club, and there was a lot of uh, helpful, good information. And then my senior year of high school, I got a a job as a sports writer slash photographer for the Tazewell County News, huh. a prestigious uh, newspaper. Well, no, it's just a small town newspaper. They did a good job. <laughs> but here's the thing, though: I followed. Well, they they had a they had a sports uh, editor whose name was Jim Baquette, and he left to become editor at Shooting Times Magazine. I mean, that's a prominent publication, and. Even when I lived in Montana, I'd look at shooting times, and yeah, he was you know, he was still listed there in the masthead as uh, an editor. But anyway, in between real sports writer photographers, they they hired me, so I learned some things from, from the editors, and and then boy, the summers I spent in Rocky Mountain National Park in high school, 
you know, we've talked about, I'd, I'd go to these fly fishing demonstrations. Uh, they also had a photography ranger naturalist who knew something about photography. Although a few times I remember my dad actually giving this guy some pointer. That's a good <laughs> idea. I think it was a lot of those sorts of things where I learned the same thing, you know, crop your images, move in close, uh, have things in the foreground and some of the stuff that we'll talk about uh, today. But uh, again, neither you or I are professional photographers by any stretch, but we've had some reason to pay attention to these things. And I, I think it's helped us. So Dave, where would you start? Uh, you, you've got fly fisher who wants to take some decent photos but what are some tips that we can offer the very first one is a is a larger issue which is it's more about the trout than the photo uh, and that is reduce the photo shoot time between catch and release and talked about uh, protecting the fish and i think that has to be our first point as we talk about uh, taking pictures of fish and taking pictures in that interval between the time you catch the fish and the time you release the fish. And mm. all the science says, at least the, the biologists and the people we've talked to, that is the most crucial time, is that time between the time you catch the fish and the time you release it. That is what will keep that fish surviving into the future, right? And so taking pictures interrupts that. And it extends the time. So all the movement about keep them wet, that's really important. But at the end of the day, it's that time between the time you catch it and the time you release it. So I think we need to make sure that we start with this, this statement of protect the trout at all costs. And if you're going to take a picture, make sure you do it as quickly as possible. I remember uh, you and I were fishing out in Montana and we... We had a guided float trip with our friend Toby from Fins and Feathers. And there's a picture of me on Facebook gripping this fish with both hands because I couldn't grip it for some reason. And you know how fish are. So it's high, almost above my head, and it's out of the water. And Toby posted that on Facebook. And I remember one of the comments said, ah, the death grip referring to my grip on the trout. <laughs> and and that stuck with me. There's a right way and a wrong way to take take pictures of, of fish. So it's very important. And yeah, we you know, I know there's people with different opinions about uh, fish photos, but I think you're right. If you can close that gap, that interval between when the fish is out of a well, when it's caught and when it's released, then then you're good. So a second one would be uh, shoot the whole story. Uh, and this may seem obvious, but, man, we see a lot of fish pictures. And, and yet, how about taking pictures of the rock formations or the birds or the flowers or, or your beat-up fly uh, that you, <laughs> you caught fish on? That, that's kind of interesting. Uh, your fly fishing partner doing something silly. I mean, all of those things are, are uh, really interesting. So... Yeah, shoot the whole story, not just a not just the fish. The corollary to this is really to put your fly rod down and get your camera out. And I have not always done this, but in recent years, especially as you and I have fished more and more together, I really have enjoyed just uh, taking more pictures of you while you're fishing, while you're catching a fish. Maybe you in the foreground with the mountains in the background. Or 
you know, the grizzly bear that's right about ready to pounce on you, those types of things. You are much better at it than, than I am. And, and, yeah, I enjoy catching the fish while, fish while you're taking the photo. So <laughs> that, that's why we get along so well. No, it, this reminds me years ago, my brother and I were fishing a beaver dam in the, the Buterant National Forest south of Jackson, Wyoming. And I, I got photos of him. Uh, fishing this beaver pond with a moose about 50 yards behind him. And, oh. and, and and it wasn't, I mean, it sounds too close. Often 50 yards from a cow moose is too close. But it was this big beaver pond. And, I mean, the you know, it was, good night. We, it was probably a 10-foot deep pool between us and the moose. So we weren't too uh, worried. And then, oh, yeah, Dave, do you remember that? That little restored gas station in the little town in Minnesota. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And we got some great photos of that. I mean, it's it's things like that that uh, that provide great memories, and sometimes you get good photos out of those. So, yeah, shoot the whole story. Your story about your brother triggers a story. When I was fishing with your brother in Colorado, maybe two or three years ago, we were fishing near the headwaters of the Colorado River. Um, and, and, and all of a sudden, two yearling moose were moving through the brush and through the willows and just kept moving closer and closer and closer. And it was almost as if we'd move farther away and they would move. It was really a, like an awkward moment and almost dangerous because we were thinking there's got to be a cow moose here somewhere. Mm, these, wow. these were yearlings. So they had been born uh, a year earlier. And then we said, okay, we just have got to get out of here. We started moving to the road, to the highway where our car was parked. And by that time, there were a bunch of tourists that had stopped and got out of their cars and were walking towards the moose. So it ended up where they were almost pushing them towards us, just given the angles of everything. It was a really uncomfortable situation. (laughs) I tell you what, if there is a moose involved, you might not want to be near my brother. Somehow he attracts them. I, I'm trying to remember, have I told that story before on our podcast about the about the time when he got charged by a moose when he was dressing a, a bull elk he shot? He and my dad, well, he had shot this five-point bull elk, and it was the same exact place, the same park, or it's kind of a... Uh, an open grassy area on this ridge in the Absorky Beartooth Wilderness area. And anyway, so he shot this five-point bull, and and he and my dad are you know gutted it out, and they're they're deboning the meat so they could pack this thing out. I mean, we had to go down over a ravine and then get back up to a trail, and we could bring horses in. Well, somehow my brother Dave, as he's prone to do, he nicked his thigh with his hunting knife. I still don't know how to do, how he did that. And so he drops his hunting pants to look at the, you know, the wound. And as he's doing that, he hears this, this noise, this kind of this bellow coming from the brush. And all of a sudden, here comes a cow moose and a bull is chasing the cow. And they're coming <laughs> right at him. And his hunting pants, his trousers are down at his ankle. So he's trying to shimmy. Yeah, he's trying to shimmy over to this tree where his hunting rifle is, or at least... And, and then, oh, then with about 10 yards to go, the, the cow went one side and the bull went the other and they avoided him. But so I wish I would have had a, or, well, I wasn't there, but I wish my dad would have, I don't know if he had his camera, but I wish he would have taken some photos <laughs> rather than worrying about my brother's safety at that point. So 
Oh man. Well, hey, what else, Dave? What are what's another tip uh, uh, that, that's helpful for listeners? This is another patently obvious point, and I almost hate to say this, but I think we should say it that your cell phone camera is probably better than eighty to ninety percent of the cameras you're going to buy and try to bring along for pictures. It strikes me as odd when you start to hear the story of how some film is made, and sometimes they'll stitch in video from an iPhone into like full-scale video productions. It's amazing. So the point here is uh, you don't need to go out and buy yourself a new camera, right? Use the one you have. And there's all sorts of apps now to enhance your camera on the iPhone, you know, Zoom feature uh, apps that you can add. I use an iPhone. Steve uses an Android. And there's just so many different features now that you can add on with different apps. And I have to say... Uh, through the years, now the iPhone camera has gotten a lot better through the years, but I've always been more impressed with your camera on your Android than ever I have been with, with the iPhone. I think it was last fall when we were taking that, we were trying to, we, didn't, we did not have binoculars, and we saw what we thought was a grizzly bear up on the ridge, and I think it was a grizzly. I couldn't like zoom out on my camera and see it any closer, but you were able to do that on your Android. I was really surprised by that, and I think the power on your camera is is better than even the I have the I think I have the iPhone 10 right now. Use the camera you have, which is your cell phone camera. You're right. My family, the rest of my family, they all have iPhones, and my wife has said too. She said, "Yeah, the my Android has a better camera," but I I sense I that I think iPhones have closed the gap on that. Hey, here's another tip, and that is moving close. We kind of alluded to this at the beginning when we talked about our experiences, but, man, that's what skilled photographers do. They move in close. If, if you're photographing a fish, fill the frame. Uh, similarly, zoom in on your fly fisher friend. Now, now, we get it. Once in a while, you want to get a picture of the, the river, the mountain in the back, and your, your friend is kind of at the it's just part of the foreground, but if you really want a picture of your fly fisher friend, uh, zoom in or, or take a couple steps closer. Uh, you know, close-up shots are more interesting and they generally exude more life. So another, you know, simple tip, but I tell you what, that is huge. If, if photographers will do that, uh, that'll change the quality of your picture right there. And it'll make your fish look bigger, that very thing, right? Yeah, that's right. We we should. There's a little bonus tip. Hold your fish out at arm's length so that it's <laughs> two inches from the camera while you're at two feet from the camera. Yeah, it'll look like you've, uh, you know, that that nine inch uh, rainbow is going to look like a twenty two inch uh, rainbow. <laughs> and, but we've never done that. We've heard about that yeah. happening, but we, we've never done that. No, 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 no. We would never think about that. <laughs> All right, here's another tip, which is, I think, number five in our list here. It's add a splash of color. So a red hat or a bandana or uh, you know, an orange shirt. <laughs> I'm not saying you should wear an orange shirt, but it might spook a trout, right? Color does spook trout, but it sure does add a lot to your photos. <laughs> so uh, if, if you're not, you know, if you're, if you're throwing streamers, that are 40 feet away or 60 feet away, you may not have to worry about uh, about what you're wearing as much as if you're 
on a small stream and need to be more camouflaged and wear clothing that actually integrates with the background more. But adding a splash of color can really add to the photo and make it just so much more interesting. Now, now Steve's a kind of a pretty boy and he'll wear a red bandana <laughs> just because yeah. he wants to be photographed more. So you have to watch out for those kind of folks, but because uh, they get all the pictures then. You said that, and I was just going to say, oh, yeah, when have I ever worn a red bandana? Well, guess what? That picture from 40 years ago, I, I, was, wearing a, I was wearing a red bandana. Oh, man. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, but this is, the, this is the first time in my life I've ever been accused of being a pretty boy. So, yeah, thanks, Dave, for whatever that's worth. But yeah, you're right. There's so many earth tones, you know, the greens, the browns, the blues, that, that something red or orange can make a difference. All right, here's another tip, uh, and this is really important, and I think it's one that uh, uh, a lot of uh, fly fishers don't think about unless they've had a background in photography, and that is keep the sun behind you. You know, if the sun is behind the fly fisher that you're trying to photograph, your camera lens will do the same thing that your eye does when it looks into the sun. It's going to squint. And that allows less light into the picture, making it dark. Now, that's not an issue at high noon. But if you're taking a picture earlier in the morning or later in the day, uh, make sure that the sun is behind you, not behind the fly fissure that you're photographing. Uh, similarly, if your subject is in the shade, uh, make sure that the background is not lit up by the sun. Shade can be your friend, by the way, because it lessens the shadows uh, that hide your subject's face. So whenever I'm taking a picture of somebody, even if it's just, hey, get a picture of me in front of the house because this is the first day of school or whatever, uh, I always try to get her to move into the shade because it just softens things. But if you have a sunlit patch behind the shade, uh, there again, that sun is going to make your camera lens squint. And it's going to turn your photo uh, darker. I think this is number seven. And that is to include an object in the foreground. I think Steve already mentioned it, as I've said. But this gives depth of field to your photos and even can provide a kind of frame which accents uh, the photos. And I think later, as you decide how to crop the photo, it gives you something to crop with and create tension, uh, you know, cropping tensions within within the photo. So whether that's a tree branch or a bush or a rock or like the top of your fly rod or just creates a frame for the for the picture and just makes it inherently more interesting. Man, that's such an important tip. It really is. All right. Number eight is to shoot scenery early and late. And if you look at the scenery shots on your favorite calendar or book cover, uh, I can guarantee you that those shots that, that have vivid colors uh, are taken early in the morning or later in the evening. It's not because they have a $2,000 lens. Now, that doesn't hurt, uh, but it's all about time of day. In fact, I had a friend who was going to make a career change and go into photography, but he quit. Uh, and he had, man, he had sunk thousands of dollars into a lot of expensive equipment, but he quit because he realized, I've got to be there at dawn and I've got to be there at dusk. Huh. And that, that's just how it works. 
So, yeah, it's the light in the early morning and the early evenings that bring scenery to life. And, and I'm, we're not saying never take a picture at noon, but if you have the opportunity, uh, get your scenery pictures first thing in the morning or uh, later in the day. And those shadows that can really mess up pictures of people, they actually add a striking contrast. And, of course, that flattens out uh, during midday. So, yeah, shoot scenery early and late. That reminds me, I think one of our recent podcasts, we talked about fishing in the summer, and and I think our point was fish the low light, which is early morning, late at night, you know, and, and not the heat of the day, with some exception. But uh, I think this, for, this, this one is shoot the low light. That's the point. The next one is, I think this is number nine, is think in thirds. And this is a basic... Uh, principle in photography, and many of you will already know this, but if you're photographing a stretch of river with the sky in the background, it's easy to get the horizontal dividing line between land and sky in the middle of the photograph. And this breaks the photo into equal halves, an upper and a lower section. And this is easy to do, but it ends up not being interesting. It, it creates really a bland photo, and I think works against depth of field and some of the things that you really want. Instead, devote either the top third or the top two-thirds to the sky, and this dis disproportionately will make your photo much, much more interesting. And, you know, when you include a fly fisher in a landscape photo, keep him or her out of the middle. Again, this is boring. But imagine that your landscape shaped photo has been divided into three vertical panels. Put the fly fisher in either the panel to the left or to the panel to the right. And if your fly fisher is facing left, place him or her in the right panel so that she's not looking out of the picture. And if your fly fisher is facing right, place him or her, well him, if it's him, then place him in the left panel. So take a photo that breaks the rule and you'll see really how silly this looks. You know, somebody at the right-hand side of the picture, for example, that's looking out of the picture. So these are kind of basic things, but they, they will take an average picture and just ratchet it up a couple degrees of quality. Now, you know what we've done here, Dave. We've put a lot of pressure on ourselves because now all these photos that we post on Instagram and Facebook are going to get scrutinized. And <laughs> we're we're going to see whether or not we've uh, actually followed our own rules. So. <laughs> All right, here's uh, insight number 10. And I think we have 12 of these uh, tips today. Uh, but the, the 10th tip is to take 10 photos to get one good one or 20 photos to get one good one. Now, Dave, I'm, I'm like you. This kind of drives my family crazy and this drives my wife especially crazy I mean, why do you have a dozen shots of that lake or that white-tailed deer well the reason is you need to do it to get one good one and by the way when using a flash uh, if you have the red eye reduction feature use that if you have it uh, initially when you take that photo they've got large pupils what that means is that the light can bounce back and, and that's where you get that red-eye effect. So actually what the red-eye reduction is on your flash is that it flashes once. That, that closes down their pupil. And, and then the second flash coincides with the actual exposure. And so if you have that feature, use that when you're doing flash photography. 
about the only thing, the other thing that you can do is to kind of go at a, an angle so that you're not directly uh, looking at your subject. Uh, or, I, I guess if you have uh, one of those uh, editing features, uh, you can change those uh, red eyes to, yeah, what's the country song? Don't it make my brown eyes blue? Well, <laughs> don't it make my red eyes blue or my red eyes brown? Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So the next point is number 11, I think, in our list. It's basically something we've been saying throughout, but just an important thing and a good reminder to, to edit your photos. We've already talked about cropping your photos. And as I mentioned, this, this guy named Bill who had taken this class from Ansel Adams and who had done the photo essay for your father, he talked about, again, this tension that you need to create between points in the actual photo. And, and so cropping against maybe the top of the tree with the bottom of maybe the reel or something that create these tension points in your cropping. And I'd never, I'd never heard of this before, right? So he was a master cropper. So he would take an average photo and make it so much better just by cropping it. So editing is really, really important. And today, most of those editing features are basic in all the iPhones, I know at least, and also on the Androids. There's all these different apps, and one I think that is really good for adding filters is uh, is Snapseed. I think it's like the number one iPhone app, but it is really great for adding in different colorations and, and tweaking the greens and tweaking the blues. If you go to our website, Two Guys in a River, that image that is on that homepage of it's actually uh, at, of this high mountain lake in the collegiate peak wilderness and you're looking at mount huron uh, across the lake that was actually edited with snapseed and the colors were just deepened and tweaked just enough i mean if you do it too much then it really does look faux and false but that photo is just a beautiful photo i didn't do that it was the guy i was i was fly fishing with he was a a client at the time, and he he was just so good at photography, but he took the pic and then tweaked it just a little bit with Snapseed and just came out beautifully. It sounds like that you can do then what we used to do back in the day when I would always put a polarizing filter on the front of my lens so that you could kind of move that around. And it does what polarizing sunglasses do. It not only cuts the glare, but it kind of deepens the blue in the sky. So, yeah, that's a good, that's a good tip. All right, here's a final one, and we've alluded to this already, but switch up your angles. I mean, squat and shoot. You know, hold the camera high or hold it lower. And once you should be talking about this, Dave, because you're the master at this. And I, I think I have a photo on what well, it is it's on my Facebook page that uh, uh, we couldn't help it. The sun was behind me, so that's not good. But uh, man, you got down. I thought you were gonna dip your. Uh, cell phone into the Madison River <laughs> to get that photo. You know what? It, it, it actually makes me look good. And uh, man, if you can do that with a photo, then uh, wow, yeah. Ch change the angle and, and there is something to that. Well, yep. anything, anything that makes me look taller and makes me look thinner, especially, you know, I've always been 5'8 and will forever be 5'8. Uh, but if I look 5'10 or 5'11, I'm all for that. Hey, that's right. Whatever it takes. Yeah. Well, I guess what we're saying is that good fly fishing photographers are made, not born. Uh, so while your fly fishing partner is working on his or her back cast, uh, work on your photo skills. Take photos of them. Uh, use our tips and take lots of photos. 
Uh, you'll have some good ones that will bring back good memories and uh, sometimes not so good memories, but uh, <laughs> maybe we'll even create some laughter. And if you're taking photos of uh, uh, your fly fishing partner working on their back cast, uh, you're, you're bound to have a lot of fun. So. All right, it's time for great stuff from our listeners. Here's a comment from David on our recent podcast titled, Underexplained Aspects of Fly Fishing, and he writes... As a self-taught fly fisher and fly tire, I can completely relate to this podcast. I started fly fishing in the early 80s, and a couple weeks ago I just learned how to correctly put my flies in the fly box that are lined with foam and have the slits. I've been putting them in wrong the whole time. Yup, embarrassing. <laughs> I think I still put them in wrong. <laughs> oh, man. And what is you the know, correct that, way, right? You just back them in, right? Yeah, I think so. You know, that, that reminds me. So after living in our house for 13 and a half years, uh, literally three days ago, I finally learned that there is a little shutoff switch at the top of the main hall closet door jam that turns off the closet light when you close the door. And I, I've been turning it on and off with the pull string for years. And the other day, my wife <laughs> painted it. She said, hey, look at this. Like, no, you got to be kidding. So, <laughs> oh. uh, so yeah, David, we feel your pain. There's a lot of parts of life that uh, are underexplained, and that includes fly fishing. So, yeah, hopefully we can all uh, put our flies in our fly boxes the, the correct way. But, uh, we should just mention that the reason Chris is painting the light switch is because Steve is moving. Yeah, that's right. We uh, we sold our house, and we're we're actually living with the buyers for about uh, three weeks. They've been gracious enough to let us live there, and we'll we'll see if they're decent landlords. We might have to move out early. <laughs> but it's actually my daughter-in-law. I'm sorry, it's my daughter and my son-in-law. Uh, we we sold the house to them. They need a four-bedroom. Uh, we don't. So uh, uh, yeah, we're we're just hoping that one morning we don't come home back from whatever and, and all our stuff is on the lawn but uh, <laughs> now they yeah. can be the slum landlords <laughs> yes that, that's right that's right they've lived with us for a little while while they're looking for a house now we're living with them so it's all good it's all fun well hey that's going to do it for today uh thanks again for listening i'm steve matthewson and i'm dave getz until next time we are two guys on a camera uh no i mean Two guys in a river. <laughs> For the love of photography or third-rate photography and fly fishing.